You are listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcva.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Twenty-four-seven, three-sixty-five. Well, good morning, church. We're so glad to see each and every one of you this morning. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. Just so incredibly grateful, excited to study the Word of God with you this morning, but also to celebrate the Lord's Supper after these services. And so grateful to God for an incredible worship this morning. We are a multi-generational church that is passionate about multiplying disciples to follow Jesus. So before we study the text this morning, uh, why don't I ask the Lord to bless our time together. If you would, please bow your head and close your eyes. Our Father, Lord, we come to you, God, in prayer. Father, so grateful, Father, for the abundant reality that we have in Christ. Father, for the privilege that it is of ours, Lord, to study this word. And Father God, to sing songs of praise to you. And Father, lift high the name of Christ. And Holy Spirit, come right now. Lord, fill our hearts. And Father, amplify this text. Lord, help us multiply its content to make disciples and make disciples that follow Jesus. It's in the name of Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you would, open your Bibles to me, the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, as we continue a series on the mission of our church that we started last week called 24-7, 365. Just so grateful for our content teams and creative teams who have put together a resource that we can walk alongside these texts together. So if you're wanting more of, of a devotional aspect throughout the week, text the word REACH to 45776 and we'd love to have that available to you. Now, FBCBA exists to reach BA and beyond by multiplying disciples to follow Jesus. That everything we do should be to this end. That everything we do should be about making something that makes something that makes something, either till we go be with the Lord or until he returns for us. It is our sole desire, our singular focus in preschool, kids, students, and adults that all align to this end. You see, we want to see your life as a way of life. And so everything we do, we want to equip and inspire and encourage you to make disciples and make disciples to follow Jesus. That is why we place an added emphasis on you engaging in worship. That it's not just a means for you to participate or to receive, but actually engage in lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. We realize that's not always the easiest thing. So we also want you to be in a group, that group life is essential for us as we follow Christ. It's amazing to me if you study the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about a thousand days of the ministry of Jesus. You'll find that Jesus taught thousands, that he healed thousands, that he fed thousands, but that Jesus spent 70% of his time in the Gospels with 12 men. That there was this intrinsic intentionality by our Savior to give his life to a few to reach the many. We may do the same as we follow Christ. We also want you to invest in a few. From the 12 came three, Peter, James, and John. They were the only disciples that were with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. They were the only disciples that were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It would be these men that would help propel and expand the mission of Christ in the book of Acts. And the world has never been the same. We also want you to make an impact that the Bible is clear that the moment that we accept Christ and we not only get the gift of salvation, but that we have a gift given to us by God to display his glory among others. So what's that gift? What's that passion? How can it fulfill the mission that God has given our church? And that's why we've established here Next Steps 101 and Next Steps 201, where you can, within an hour, begin to walk through with our team 
how the gifts God has given you and how can you display those to fulfill mission. All under the understanding that we're going to give it away. That we want to be radically generous as a church. And we've seen God bless us from decade to decade, from month to month, from week to week, from literally faithful believer in Christ, from faithful believer in Christ. God has been so gracious to us. And so that is why we're taking four weeks to remind ourselves once again of what we're trying to accomplish on this hill. What is the point of gathering? What is the point of being his church to fulfill his mission? And so that's why last week we studied the Great Commission from Luke chapter 24. And we talked about the necessity of disciple making as a way of life as we follow Christ. That Jesus outlines to us in the Great Commission an ongoing, progressive, multiplying, biblical process in which every disciple maker is to participate in. This isn't for those who have degrees, or this isn't just for those who have this passion. No, this is for all of us who love and follow Jesus. The Bible details that every Christ follower is to be a disciple maker. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty humbling. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to go another second without reminding ourselves, what is a disciple then? I mean, if making disciples and make disciples is not a suggestion, it's a mandate, it's not an option, but rather it's a command, it's to be a way of life, then what is a disciple? And I want you thinking about, as we hear this text this morning, and we talk from Luke chapter 5, how Jesus called his disciples, if this matches your heart. Throughout the New Testament, there is overwhelming evidence that there are three primary characteristics of what is a disciple. Number one, a disciple knows and follows Christ. That salvation is not just a mere assertion of facts. It is not just you basically knowing an orientation about God. But no, there is a progressive way of life that is detailed. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It is a knowledge that leads to a wisdom applied in a life. A life that is given to God completely. A life then that secondly then becomes more like Christ, that it is the desire of God for us to become like someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find that in high times and in low times, that God will be gracious, that God will show mercy, that, that God will provide specific instruction, that God will allow trials and temptations and all of these things to this end, that you would become more like Christ. And thus then are committed to Living out the mission of Christ. And so now it's with every fiber in my being today that we begin from what is a disciple to begin now to detail Jesus is calling his first disciples and how then we are to multiply by God's grace tens of thousands through the years. Disciples who will make disciples who make disciples as we multiply disciples to follow Jesus. Are you ready to study the word this morning? It is within this context that now we give our hearts to one of my favorite narratives on disciple-making in Luke chapter 5. Why don't we study in depthly this morning, verses 1 through 11, and your Bible says this. And on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And getting into one of these boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and began to teach from the people, from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets out, for let's go for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we've toiled all night. We took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down my nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to one of their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so much so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Look at verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they immediately left everything and followed him. Previously, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry. And the world has never been the same since. Our king on his way to be the risen Christ of the universe, Lord and Savior of the entire world and all those who will call upon him, begins his ministry inexplicably. He begins preaching and expounding on the Old Testament in Nazareth. And immediately the people receive it with awe and wonder. But yet their response isn't repentance and belief. Their response is literally to throw him off a cliff. They couldn't believe this content. That literally the 39 books of the Old Testament all found this application, its consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of giving their lives to following Christ, no, they seized him and tried to throw him off a cliff. As a preacher, it's actually quite encouraging that regardless of how good or bad I do this morning, it's like, well, at least they didn't throw me off a cliff, Lord. And it's this way that Jesus' ministry begins. And the Bible says that about halfway through the book of Luke that he works his way through in Luke chapter 4 to Capernaum, a specific city at a specific time. And according to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, Jesus was up all night performing miracles, doing things that no one had ever seen, could even believe what they were hearing. And in the first miracle recorded in the book of Luke, he heals a demon-possessed man in Capernaum. And then a transition of time, Luke, the historian, gives us in Luke 5. On one occasion, an indefinite amount of time has passed. But clearly, Jesus' preaching had began to attract massive crowds, specifically by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret in Luke 5 refers here to a fertile heavily populated area in Jesus' day. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, estimates that the population of Galilee at the time of Christ was right at three million people, or half the populace of the state of Oklahoma, or three times that of Tulsa. It is within this context that historians have confirmed that there were around 240 commercial fishing boats a day on the Lake of Gennesaret. Now, this lake was incredibly popular throughout the New Testament. It's also called the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, and also the Sea of Tiberias in John chapter 6, verse 1. Here's the point. There's a lot of people everywhere. This is a happening place. This is a downtown-ish area. Thousands of people possibly are being drawn to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ. So much so that the Bible says at the end of verse 1 that they begin pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now you see this word here is very distinct. In fact, it's the first time it appears in Luke's gospel. It is always, and this is important, descriptive of the gospel message. Now I'll remind you that Jesus as the fulfillment of all of scripture is one of Luke's major themes in his gospel. 
And that is why grammatically here, Luke uses a subjective genitive as the word of God. You say, what does that mean? He's translating here, not from the Old Testament scriptures, but rather he is saying that Jesus is proclaiming his word as the very source of God. That is, Jesus is speaking, God is speaking. So consequently, when Jesus spoke, it was God speaking. As I'll remind you, his style was completely different from the rabbis of his day. Jesus didn't quote from other rabbis. He didn't quote scholars' opinions or even Jewish theologians as other rabbis did. No, he simply spoke and it was. Why? Because it was the very words of God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. For truth finds its source in him. I tell you, one of the most encouraging things you can do this week is go through your New Testament, specifically the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just read devotionally all the letters in red. Use it as a time of encouragement, of inspiration, but also taking these words as your own. Why? Because in a world that is crazy times, in a world that minute by minute it seems like the world is changing, we have a God who never changes. We have a God who is on his throne, who's in charge. Be led by his word, not the world. Can I tell you if you do so that the Bible promises you a blessing? In fact, I'll remind you, the Bible says that the word of God leads to salvation, for it is by the hearing of the word of God that we come to faith, Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that by reading the words of God that you can gain wisdom and strength and confidence, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, verses 28 through 30. That by reading God's word that you can give hope and an assurance of the expected reality that is to come for us in Christ. Paul says in Romans 15 verse 4. That in reading God's word that you're reminded of his promises. In fact, one biblical commentator estimates that there are 8,810 promises of God given in the Bible. Did you realize that of those 8,810 promises, that 85% of them, are you ready for this? are from God to his people. We have a God who is known. We have a God who is alive and he's alive in us. We have a God who desires to talk to us. We have a God who desires to lead and instruct us, to give us wisdom and strength and confidence. We have a God who desires to secure our hope in Christ. And when God speaks, he leads. And when we read God's word, it is God speaking to us. No wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Be led by his word, not the world. And so the Bible says in verse 2, And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now these boats were huge. They were more than likely 20 to 30 feet long. They were fishing boats. In fact, the Bible says that they were large enough for Jesus and all of his disciples to fit in them. In fact, you can read about this historically in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, and Mark chapter 4, verse 38. You see, fishermen in Jesus' day, they would fish all night back and forth through the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. And then, right about five or six in the morning, more than likely, they would then anchor their boats near the shore, and then they would spend hour upon hour meticulously mending their nets. 
And so it's within this context, the Bible says in verse 3, that Jesus sat down and took a, a typical rabbinical posture of teaching and began to teach the people from this boat. Now, you know our Lord lived a life of intentionality. And so in my humble opinion, there's a reason why Jesus purposefully chose Peter's boat. It would be Peter who would be the leader of the disciples. It would be Peter, even at this time in Luke chapter 5, would have known of Christ, would have known of his ministry. Jesus more than likely possibly even stayed in Peter's home, according to Luke chapter 4. And so it's within this context in verse 4 that when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets and let's go for a catch. You see, Jesus asked Peter to take his boat off the shore. And the moment he was done instructing God's people, immediately after his teaching, Jesus turns to him and through an object lesson, an affirmation of his omniscience, he commands Peter to drop his nets in a specific place and let's go have a catch. Now before I give you Peter's response in verse five, this isn't necessarily the easiest request upon Christ. You see, there were three modes of fishing in the New Testament. The one that's all too common here in the state of Oklahoma. It's just a rod and a reel and a, a man who would, with a line, just throw out over and over again from the shore. So many of us do that so well. Some better than others. Secondly, there was a second form of fishing that was more of a circular dragnet, about five to six feet in diameter. And literally from the shore, these disciples would cast this net and they would throw it out. 50, 60, 70 feet, then bring it back over and over and over again. Now, can you imagine doing this throw by throw, hour by hour? These disciples weren't these donut-filled individuals that we see so much in our narratives. No, these were men's men. These were men who knew the benefit of hard work. These were men who knew that if they did not live without intentionality, and they couldn't provide for their families. They wouldn't be able to sustain their life. It would be these men that Jesus would choose to change the world. But the net that Jesus is describing here is, is not this rod and reel, or not even this circular dragnet, but, but rather a, a massive half-mile-long fishing net that would be between two boats throughout the Sea of Galilee. Now, with that in context, can you see how Peter responds so casually, the disciples have been out fishing all night. They'd spent probably hours upon hours mending these nets, having caught nothing. And it's within this context that Peter says in verse 5, Master, we've toiled all night, and we've took nothing. But at your word, I'll let it down the nets. You see, Simon Peter, who I believe is a believer in Christ at this time, that he's already accepted Christ according to John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. He respectively addresses our king. He uses here a word, master. It's, it's better translated chief or commander or captain. Now, I'll remind you that Peter is not affirming Christ's deity with this response. He hadn't used Lord yet. But he is here respectively as if someone is in charge imploring Christ, almost hamstandingly. It's almost as if Peter is saying, well, chief, you know, we've been fishing in this area our entire lives. 
And our livelihoods depend upon our knowledge of catching fish. And we've been fishing all night in an area that we've known our entire life, who no one knows better than us, and we've caught nothing. But even though this makes no sense, we'll get back out there, I guess, and we'll lower our nets one more time. You see, I can appreciate Peter's comments. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not an aspiring fisherman. I'm more of an aspiring catcherman. I don't know about you, but I'm going to give hours of my life. It's not just sitting in some boat where no one's biting. Nothing's biting. But hey, if we're catching, I'm all aboard. I'm ready. Fishing to me like that is exhilarating. Fishing where you're just sitting there for hours upon hours and nothing's happening, that's not fishing. That's a beating. And these disciples, they've been fishing all night in waters that from birth they knew exactly where to go and they caught absolutely nothing. And here Jesus is instructing these men on where to go and how to fish. And so probably out of respect and gratitude, I think one for healing of his mother-in-law. In fact, you can find this in Luke chapter 4, verse 39. Apparently she was quite the cook as well. And so Peter was probably more than grateful to do what the Lord requests. I mean, if she wasn't a cook, he probably wouldn't have been as grateful, right? But it's probably out of gratitude for healing his mother-in-law and even just abject curiosity Peter agrees to head out to the specific spot in the heat of the day. Now, so many of you are greater fishermen than I are. But how many of you are going to go fishing at noon, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in this Oklahoma heat? It's 114 degrees outside. Sometimes fish are smarter than we are. They're not going to bite. They're not going to be active. You don't go fishing at this time. Everyone knows that. You go fishing early in the morning when the sun hits the water and they come to eat. Or at the end of the day, as they've been drowning in the cool waters, waiting finally to come forward. That's when you get them. But no, Jesus tells these men, he'd been teaching all morning. And then he looks at Simon Peter and says, let's go. Go to the specific spot. Drop your nets. And they did. What's the point here? You see, Jesus is Lord over it all. You see, I don't know what the Lord will have for you this week. I don't know what the Lord's going to ask of you this week. But I do know how he wants you to respond in complete, immediate obedience. With an awe-inspiring wonder of what it is that Christ is going to do in and through you. And so do professional men. So do hard work men. So to men who knew this lake better than anybody, Jesus sets the scene for one of the most awe-inspiring, without explanation, pandemonium experiences in the entire New Testament. And so they go out into the middle of the lake of Gennesaret. And they came and filled both boats with fish. So much so that the end of verse 7 that they began to sink, shockingly, Upon the sovereign omniscience of Jesus, instantly, the Luke historian tells us, they began to catch so many fish that their boats almost sank. You see, as God, Jesus knows where you are and how to get you where you need to be. You see, these men knew the lake 
These men knew their boats and their nets and their equipment, even their teeth. But they didn't know where the fish were. Only Jesus did. He knew exactly where they needed to be at the specific time they needed to be at. Can I tell you throughout the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus that he gives us glimpses of such truth? In fact, in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus begins to teach to a crowd and introduces a sermon on the mount, he begins to tell them, and I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be unduly concerned. Do not think about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or how you shall live. But consider the birds of the air, he says. For they neither toil nor spin, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 12, verse 6, And consider the, the sparrows, for they toil and they fly. The impetus there is literally hop. That every bird you see, that God knows that they're hopping. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've had a flock, a squadron of geese kind of invade our campus recently. And I got to church early, early one morning, and it was on the north side of our campus, and there were some geese just kind of walking across the road, taking their time, going for a gander, apparently. And so I kind of casually waited, and you know how it is. It, it was really about a minute, but it seemed like an hour. And, and so there was one, and there's always one. There was one goose. He was just taking his sweet time. So I kind of began to, you know, kind of head up to him a little bit to kind of spur him on, and he just stopped in the road. And so finally I just laid on the horn, honk. He kind of began to hop, and he kind of gave me this look and began to hiss back, and I just told him, the Lord knew you were going to do that. Have a great day. He knows the birds of the air. He knows if a goose is going to hop or not. Can he take care of you? Remember what Jesus says? Surely you are of more value than my father. God knows where you are and how to get you where you need to be. And I don't know about you, but I'm so humbled by this truth. And these disciples were humbled. Peter, he was crushed. And that is why in verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Immediately, Peter became aware of his own sinfulness. So much so that he overwhelmingly falls on his knees because of the supernatural actions of Jesus. It was the ability of Jesus displayed by controlling and miraculously catching all of these fish that confirmed in Peter's heart once and for all that Jesus Christ truly who he said he was, that he was God. That Peter knew that he was more than a carpenter, that he was more than a prophet, that he was more than a teacher. No, this was the eternal God in human flesh in my boat. And it completely overwhelmed Peter's life. You know, honestly, up until verse 8, the fish showed more or greater obedience than Peter did. But here it is, the grace of God, from the power of God, through the person of God, that has absolutely overwhelmed Peter's life. It gripped him. 
with the spiritual reality that the only appropriate reaction of Peter is to say, whoa, from this wow moment. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In fact, the interesting thing is that actually, this was a constant reaction with the disciples throughout the Gospels of Jesus. In fact, you remember similarly in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, where the disciples found themselves in this great storm, and Jesus is sleeping in a boat, and literally the storm begins to overwhelm the boat, it's about to capsize, and they begin to wake Jesus up, and immediately this violent storm, Jesus wakes up and says, peace be still, and it ceases. And literally these disciples in Mark 4, verse 41, came to great fear because he who is one who can control the storms. Why were they more frightened by the peace of God in the boat than the storm outside the boat? Because Jesus was more than a carpenter. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a teacher. He was eternal God in human flesh. And they beheld his glory with awe and wonder, John says in John 1. It is the amazing reality that it is Jesus alone who can make outsiders insiders. That God was graciously teaching Peter and us. The Bible is clear that God's law and holiness demands our wholehearted, unflinching, flawless devotion. That God doesn't immune any of us from his glory. That all of us are culpable in light of his holiness and perfect law. But yet God's gospel is just as clear to declare that God is wholeheartedly, unflinchingly, and flawlessly devoted to his people, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this humble dichotomy that we present to the world. That all of us, in light of the holiness of Christ and the power of Christ, are driven to our knees before Christ. But yet, instead of an iron scepter, he extends nail-scarred hands Instead of condemning us, no, by faith he accepts us and draws us unto himself. This boat was the safest place in all of Galilee. This boat was the most holy place in all of Gennesaret. This boat was the means in which the King of kings and Lord of lords would draw all men unto himself who believe in him. And immediately God wondrously did a work among these disciples' hearts, specifically Peter's heart. And so in verse 8, where Peter falls before the Lord, he's fearful, terrified of his life. He literally tells Christ, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Look at Jesus' response in verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus immediately responds, stop being terrified. From now on, you will be capturing men. Can I tell you that over 365 times this phrase, do not be afraid, appears in the Bible? One for every day of the year. 
regardless of our challenges, regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of how wayward this world goes, how crazy these elected officials become, do not be afraid. Regardless if you lose your job, regardless if you get this phone call with illness and malady, regardless if a relationship goes awry, do not be afraid. God is in control. God is in his throne. God is in the boat. And he leads this promise to purpose. Stop being terrified. From now on, you will be capturing, catching men. You see this word used by Christ in verse 10? Catching? It's of a compound word. It comes from the word Zeus, alive. And then again, it describes a hunter who would capture his prey alive. Jesus intentionally uses these words in combination to signify a way of life. That everything in their life would be given to draw people to his life. That their entire professional life, they had been catching fish. That God had been purposefully instructing them to catch men. That God used their boats. That Jesus used their nets. That Jesus used their skills. All for this purpose. And he'll do the exact same thing for us. That God will take our education. That God will take our resources. That God will take our willingness and things and the journeys that we've gone through life. All as a means to help us catch men for him. We catch them. He saves them. For Jesus chooses to minister to others through you. And you'll find throughout the Gospels a concentration of life of Jesus to reach the many by catching the few. And it would be these 12 disciples that 70% of the Gospels Jesus would give his time to. It would be specifically within the last 15 months of his life in the Gospels that Jesus would give an intentional time to. And it would overwhelmingly be these men that completely changed the world. That you and I now are benefiting from such a phrase, and you will be catching men. So what's your response? These men were left with no other choice. And when they had brought their boats back to the land, verse 11, they left everything and followed him. The disciples' unprecedented success didn't prompt them to grow their business, but to grow God's kingdom. I find it fascinating that they didn't ask Jesus to join them, but Jesus asked them to join him. You see, they had every right to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, we'll provide the boats, we'll provide the nets, we'll provide the teams. You just show us where the fish are. We'll even throw you in 60-40, Lord. 55-45? No, they didn't do that at all. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we will. In fact, so many times we ask God to bless what we're already Lord over. So many times we ask the Lord to join us. 
God, don't change my job. Don't change my passions. Don't touch my home and kids and future. But use my life for your glory. That's not what these disciples did at all. No, Jesus asked them to join him. 100% commitment. And they followed him. Oklutheu signifies here more than a physical act. It's very important. When these disciples, when this boat hit the shore, it was not just a physical act, but rather it was an obedient allegiance, a dramatic break from their past spiritually. No longer were they consumed with themselves. They were full of Christ. They were devoted not to grow their business, but to flourish his kingdom. Not to follow themselves or their dreams or their passions, but to follow Christ, to imitate Christ, to give their lives for all the rest of their life to being more like Christ. And so consequently, the moment their boats hit the land, these disciples left it all and followed Jesus. They left their jobs, they left their securities, they left their ambitions, they left their comforts, and at the height of their careers, on their largest day physically, their best day financially, they left it all. You want to know why? Because discipleship is fellowship. Life isn't about what you achieve, but who you become. So who are you following this morning? I was so humbled this week by a quote from Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who was asked one time by a reporter, had she always pursued this call to serve the poor? And you want to know what she answered? She said, my call is not to serve the poor. The reporter was actually taken aback, kind of stunned, really. My call is not to serve the poor, she said. My call is to follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, he took me to the poor. How about you? What is it this morning that Jesus is saying, follow me? 20 times in the New Testament, Jesus commands his followers to follow him. And so what is it this morning that Jesus is saying, follow me? For some of us, it's our heart. Is it truly the Lord's? Is he truly king? For some of us, it, it, it may be our, our, our time of, of devotion to him. It, it's really just one of so many other things that God has blessed us with, not the main thing. I would love for you to prayerfully begin to ask God, why not give your life to reaching being beyond by multiplying disciples to follow Jesus? Why not give your life to just as Jesus did, investing in a few? And so that is why now for over three years, that we've been working and meticulously looking through the scriptures and have now had a time to come to you, to be a part of, of 365s, to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves, greater than anything that we can endeavor on our own, something that only the Lord promises to bless, and thus the Lord will only get the glory from. And so that is why from this text, as a result of who Christ is, that I'm asking you to prayerfully consider being a part of these 365 groups. He said, well, what is a 365 group? 
365 groups are gender-specific groups of three to five. And so pray about forming one of these groups. It's men meeting with men and women meeting with women for right at 32 weeks out of the year. You say, well, wait a minute, isn't there 52 weeks in a year? Absolutely. But we realize that there are so many things going on in our lives. And as a way of life to, to multiply ministry, to, to extend and expand God's mission, we have to provide strategic margin to allow you to do so. And so beginning every September, you would gather together in these 365s. And you would meet 32 times, 32 weeks as the Lord leads. You say, well, what would we do? Well, you would check in with one another weekly. You would study the, the Bible together. You would, from your 365 journal, which is, we've written, it's over 250 pages, by the way. You would week by week go through the scriptures together and encourage one another, hopefully over some good food and all over Tulsa as the Lord leads. Then you would recite one by one the memory verse each week. You're going to learn 32 verses a year together. Then you're going to pray for one another. And then you're going to multiply with another group every single September, year by year by year, as the Lord leads. As a way of life, we will multiply the mission of God through the people of God. Together, a few at a time. And by God's grace, may we reach the many by God's grace, may we see a way of life multiplied within his people. By God's grace, may we see all generations catching others for the glory of Jesus Christ. That every Christ follower at FBCBA is a disciple maker as a way of life. If you want more information about these 365s, we have a 365 launch meeting on August the 24th and the 31st. It's from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the ACC. And I pray it is standing room only on both nights. That I pray that, that you would, from this text, toward our mission, say, you know what, I, I want to show up tonight and I want to see what the Lord is going to do through his people. And we will walk you through step by step this way of life. Now next week, I'm going to take you inside a 365. And we're going to go from the Psalms. And we're going to describe what week in and week out is going to look together as we fulfill the mission of Christ. 24-7, 365. May we be people who takes this commission of Christ, not as a suggestion, but as a way of life May we multiply disciples to follow Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.